Hello, I'm Melinda Fellner, Chair of Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn's Tax Department. Welcome to Tax Tête-à-Tête. As the name of the podcast connotes, I'm going to be bringing you head-to-head tax discussion on topics with super minds in the space. In this episode, part three, we'll be discussing partnerships. Hi, tax fans. It's Melinda Fellner, and I'm here with Vinay Navani. Hi, Vinay. Hey, Melinda. So in previous segments, we talked a bit about limited liability companies, which was fun, right? Absolutely. A lot of fun. We're having a lot of fun. So we mentioned the limited liability companies. They're really more a corporate type creature. It's not a creature created by the Internal Revenue Code. You're not going to see it really in the Internal Revenue Code. And it can be different tax things, so to speak. So I think we should talk about what an LLC is, a multi-member LLC, domestic, is by default. Um, the tax treatment is as a partnership and, of course, would be governed by a partnership agreement. There's different types of partnerships that you can form, limited partnership, general partnership. I mean, nobody really does general partnerships much anymore. Correct. I don't, really, I, I don't know that I've, I've seen them. Um, but limited partnership, a lot of investment partnerships have a general partner with several limited partnerships. I mean, there's a variety of things that you could do. So, I mean, to me, I look at partnership tax treatment as, so the partnership itself is not a tax paying entity. Correct. But got to prepare that 1065, right, Vinay? Mm-hmm. Form, form numbers. Form 1065. Yeah. Look, I know a form number. Yeah. And um, so all of the profits and losses and so forth of the partnership go on that form. And then- we distribute it out to the partners and they get their K-1s, right? Is that yeah. how it works? Yeah, I mean, the K-1 is the, is the information reporting that tells, if we have the partnership income, which is a, a think about as a pie, that pie has to get sliced up. And it's the K-1s that are telling you what is your share of that pie. Right. Which goes back to something we talked about in a previous segment, which is really the importance of having a well-written operating slash partnership agreement because a lot of the flexibility we're going to talk about in a minute really stems from that operating agreement, which determines how the pie gets allocated, which determines how those K-1s get sent to the partners. Right. Interesting. So I can put in my agreement, say, that particular losses are going to be allocated to a certain partner, particular credits and stuff, right? You can. There's a there's a overriding principle called substantial economic effect. Ah, yes. But yes. you can't you can't simply say, okay, we're gonna Melinda and I are gonna have a start a car wash 50-50, and Melinda's got a lot of money and she needs losses. So it's so we're gonna say anytime Melinda's income is over a certain level, she's gonna get the losses, and anytime Vinay's income is over a certain level, he's gonna get the losses. You can't do that. There's got to be some economic substance uh, to how the pie is being split. Right. And and here's a good site, the Section 704B regulations, right? 704B? Anyway, but yes, you know what? And I, um, I like your answer, and I particularly started that conversation because oftentimes you get a client who comes in to people, maybe they want to do a joint venture of some sort, and it's going to be a partnership, and that's exactly what happens is they say, okay, I want all, can we give partner A all the losses and partner B all of this? And it doesn't work. It doesn't work if you're doing that in a vacuum. And, I, and I'm going to go off on a, sl- a slight tangent 
Melinda, when we talk about partnerships, partnerships are, are, are I think, are kind of a double-edged sword. They're amazingly flexible, and we can do a lot of great stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute. But with that flexibility comes a ton of complexity. And you really, many times what we'll see is people will put together pretty sophisticated partnership agreements in terms of allocations and, and how they're going to treat uh, the partnership. And it ends up the accountant who is doing the returns or the clients themselves don't really appreciate the, the mechanics that go into that. And you just have lots of years of misfilings or misallocations. And then there's some other event, the sale of the business or something else comes up that really puts a spotlight on what those issues were. So as much as the flexibility and ability to have a complex capital structure is great, you have to be able to accept that price of accepting that complexity that comes along with it. So sorry for that tangent. No, no, no. Well, you're absolutely right. So you mean the complexity as far as the allocations allocations and so forth. Correct. I agree. Yeah. You you know, so often we'll think of just, okay, um, you know, Melinda and I are starting a business. We're going to put everything 50-50, share everything 50-50. That's easy, right? So what you'll see more often, like you'll see partnerships used a lot in real estate. So what you might have is you might have two people coming together. One person, um, you know, is, is, you know, you often will have what we call the money partner and the sweat partner. Right, right. The, the money partner is bringing the capital to the to the project and the sweat partner is really running the, the, uh, the operations, managing the rental, managing the construction. They're both bringing something of value to the table. Under the general tax rules, the money partner, if they're putting in the, the capital, yeah, they could be allocated losses and maybe only the, the sweat partner gets allocated profits. You can do things like that. But now you've got multi-tab, multi-layered Excel worksheets keeping track of, okay, here's the income. How do the losses get allocated? How does the profit get allocated? What's the cumulative capital? Because we have to keep track of capital accounts in a partnership. So there's just a lot of behind-the-scenes Excel work that goes into partnership capital structures and partnership allocations. Absolutely. And so let's talk about that for a minute, too. So this notion of a partnership... So a partner in a partnership has a capital account and a basis, two different things. Correct. Well, and then we can talk about inside basis and outside basis if we really want to get If we want people, stop, if we want people to stop yeah, listening please to don't stop. podcast. <laughs> don't stop listening. But, okay, so let's just talk at, at a, a very, you know, basic level. I put a piece of property into a partnership, say – uh, it's, I have a basis of it and in it of $10 that's worth $20. So when we talk about the notions, just so everybody knows, of capital account versus basis, when I put that into the partnership, my basis in my partnership interest is 10 right? Right. You don't get a magical increase um, to, the, to your basis in your partnership right. interest because you contributed the appreciated property because you've never paid gain. You never paid tax on that gain of $10. Right, right. I think the interesting thing is, and I, this is a question I get from clients most often, is your capital account doesn't always match your basis. Maybe we're getting a little hyper-technical here, but I, this is a client you know, thing. Clients always come to me with that. Why does my capital account match my basis and so forth? So Yeah, just, and, and, well, and I guess the, you know, the related topic is that is on the K-1, there will be capital accounts. Right. And under IRS rules, those capital accounts are required to be kept on a tax basis. 
Right. You might have financial statements that are maintained on a gap or generally accepted accounting principle basis. And so then you really need to look, you need to understand the differences because they have different economic impacts. Exactly. And they can impact how much cash you can take out of the business, how income or losses would be allocated, and what a sale would look like, what an exit would look like. When you Because when you have that big gain and everybody's cashing out, who's going to get what? All gets goes back to the operating agreement. Right. And usually references capital accounts. Right. So, and part, and part of the reason kind of like we're kind of jumping around all over the place is... Again, because partnership taxation is incredibly complex. It is. And I don't pretend to be a partnership expert. Like that, I rely on people who just know these rules very well. Right. And you have to them. Absolutely. Partnership itself is not a tax-paying entity, right? You file your form, 1065. You do all the calculations of the profit and loss and so forth on the 1065. And then each partner is going to get this K-1, right? Correct. It gives them their allocable share. And really, it's just an informational form for what they're going to include on their 1040s. Right. And so, and that's right. And the amount reported on the K-1 is obviously the, the income of the partnership allocated under the rules of the partnership agreement. But that amount of income that you're allocated could have no relationship to the cash you receive. Right. That's a separate number um, that the partnership determines based on its business operations and the partnership agreement. Right. Actually, and we should talk about, let's touch on that. So a lot of clients, well, anybody would get a little upset with this so-called phantom tax issue, which right. happens quite often. And that's exactly what you're talking about, Vinay. That, so looking at a partnership, you have to look at the difference I look at is you've got allocations of income and distributions, Right. So the partnership agreement goes to what you were talking about, the allocations of income. How are we going to, in effect, hack up this income that the partnership has, has earned, right? But to Vinaya's point, allocations and distributions do not always match. Distributions are cash in hand. What are you going to walk away with? And so oftentimes a partnership agreement will include a tax distribution that says, by the way, partner gets allocated income, they automatically get a tax distribution. Say, I mean, what I typically do is at the highest combined federal and state rate of all the partners so that everybody's kind of equal. Yeah. And so let's take a step back, you know, because most people will think that, okay, if I got income, I should have cash. Right. Let, let, let's say you're an IT consulting business and your business is just growing like gangbusters during the year and you're hiring and hiring more people. You need more working capital in the company, and you need that free cash to hire more people and, and pay your expenses. So you could easily have a situation where you've been had a very profitable year, but you just cannot distribute the cash because you need to keep it in the business. And so that's where this tension comes about, because somebody's going to pay the tax on this income. Right. And you know we're going to talk about C corporations later, but... Well, you know, whether it's the corporation in a C-Corp or the partners in a partnership, somebody's got to pay this tax. And, you know, you hope that you can at least make the tax distributions. But I think anybody who's a partner in a partnership or a S-Corporation shareholder that we'll talk about separately needs to know this. Now, as a practical matter, oftentimes what we'll find is if you have a closely held business, the, 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 the principles of the business who own the majority of the uh, partnership understand this, right? They're living, breathing, managing the cash. 
but maybe they've given half a percent or one percent to a key employee or to somebody else who doesn't have that same visibility or insight into the business. Now they're getting a K one with a hundred dollars, and they're being given a cash distribution of twenty. They're not happy, right? And oftentimes with businesses, you know that that's part of the downside to issuing. And I'm going off into a completely different topic, but. It, it's part of a thought that I see quite a bit. It, 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 you, by giving, by trying to do a good thing to, to a key employee, it can cause this tension, which is a whole other subject about different types of equity compensation. But I just want to bring that up, especially we see that with K-1s. Sure. We're, you know, we're as accountants are sending out K-1s in March or April and, you know, we'll get phone calls from people saying, I never got this money. Why, right. you know, why right. am I paying tax on this money? So but that, that's it's a very it's a very real issue, though. And I know, Melinda, I promise we wouldn't talk about foreign um, aspects. No foreign. But, no foreign. Just but, kidding. But if I have a partnership and I have a foreign partner, the partnership has to withhold at r- roughly 30 percent. It can be lower with the treaty, but the partnership has to come up with cash and send that over to the IRS on behalf of the foreign partner which is also another complicating factor for right. partnerships. Interesting. We will have to talk about foreign issues. Foreign touches everything now, so we're going to have to. One other thing that I, I think we should talk about is a, ben- a definite benefit to the partnership form that's not available for other entities, right? Although we'll talk about in the other entities, there are other things that you can do from a planning perspective, you know, like in an S corporation with um, – 338 and stuff like that. But if that's, you know, the election, but for a 754 election. So maybe you could talk about that a bit with. um, So that's a section of the code, Section 754, which basically calls for certain basis adjustments in partnership property when you've got a transfer of partnership interests. So this is the tax equivalent to melatonin to help you sleep. So I'll go go through this. I'll do my best. (laughs) So a partnership only has one level of tax, right? There's not two levels of tax. So think about if I buy somebody's partnership interest. And so let's say the inside, the partnership owns a piece of land. The land has a cost basis for the partnership of $10, but it's really worth $100. And I buy 50% of the partnership. So I pay, I pay you, Melinda, um, $50 for half of that 100 So economically, I'm paying... $50, but my share of the inside asset of the company is only $5, right? Because we said it was, it was 10, I'm buying 50%. So, so there's, there's a discrepancy between I paid 50 and I only have only allocated assets with, with a, a cost basis of five. To the extent that that $5 or $10 to the partnership is depreciable assets, let's say it's a building that I can depreciate, I want to be getting my share of depreciation. Sure. And so in a partnership, you can make an election that I can start depreciating based on my 50, not based on my five. So that is a huge benefit of partnerships, which really doesn't exist with any other type of tax uh, entity. And also, if I happen to inherit 50% of a partnership and same facts, my value or my cost basis is the same 50 and I can depreciate based on the 50 because of special rules that you know we haven't talked to, spoken about, that basically when somebody dies, you inherit property, your cost basis becomes the fair value on the right, day they passed. Right. So those are 
two things that oftentimes if somebody's on the fence between an S corporation or a partnership, will sometimes tip the scales to a partnership. Makes sense. Thanks for listening to part three. If you have interest in the other parts of our series, please find them in your feed or on our website, clm.com. See you all next time.